Hey, everybody. Happy Jazz Fest. We are kicking off the second weekend of Jazz Fest today here in New Orleans. I went two times last weekend. I went Saturday and Sunday. My mom came and visited and had her first Jazz Fest experience and absolutely loved it. It was great. David Byrne was amazing. John Mayall, 84 years old, was amazing. Bonnie Raitt was amazing. Hot 8 Brass Band, always amazing. Everything we saw was just so good. Soft Shell Crab Po'boy was amazing. Um, that classic Mango Freeze. All the Jazz Fest things. If you've been, you know what I'm talking about. If you haven't, you got to come and, and check it out. Also, if you are going to Jazz Fest this weekend, Tripod has an exhibit and we're so excited about it. In the grandstand at Jazz Fest, there's an entire wall dedicated to Tripod that showcases five different episodes. And there are three tablets that are kind of installed into the wall that each have headphones. And on those tablets, you can listen to one of any five episodes that we've curated as this kind of tripod grab bag. Um, it's the first interactive tripod exhibit that to date. And so all of that is on display in the grandstand. Please go check it out, take pictures, tell people at Jazz Fest about tripods so that they can go home and they can stay connected to New Orleans just like you are doing right now. And without further ado, let's get into what you're about to hear right now. This is another tripod extra, which are, you know, kind of non-trad tripod episode so to speak sometimes there are two ways between me and another person sometimes they're just like the full uncut interview I had with someone this is actually an abridged lecture a talk given by Aaron Greenwald who is now at the New Orleans Museum of Art as the curator of programming there but she also curated the founding era exhibit that is sponsored by the Historic New Orleans Collection. It's an amazing exhibit in honor of the tricentennial that's all about the founding era and all of the different people that really made New Orleans the city that it is, from the Native American people to the African people that were kidnapped and brought here from their continent. And that's what this talk is about. So uh, Aaron Greenwald traces New Orleans' African roots from their kidnapping in Africa through the Middle Passage to the seminal role that they played in the founding of our city. And what I think is so incredible about this talk is that Aaron really distills and makes clear something that I feel has been intentionally blurred throughout history, which is really the details of how African people came here from their homeland and what it was like on the boats and what happened when they got here. And it's just, she really lays out such a clear picture of what that was like in a way I had never heard before. And so it was an hour long lecture. Here is a, uh, a 10 minute produced version. I'm also going to post the entire lecture if you wanna hear that. So if you go and find this story on WWNO.org, you can hear the entire talk that Aaron gave at the Historic New Orleans Collection. So now here is, again, an abridged version of Dr. Aaron Greenwald's talk on the first Africans arriving to the New Orleans colony in the 1700s.
The single largest group of people brought to Louisiana were the more than 6,700 African captives forcibly taken from their homelands and sold by the Company of the Indies as enslaved laborers. In the summer of 1718, the ship Aurore left Saint-Malo and sailed westward along the Breton coast. The Aurore's captain, recorded only as a Stuart d'Herpin, was charged with the first mission of its kind, the procurement of captive African laborers for the fledgling Louisiana colony. While Captain Herpin was negotiating with local traders for the purchase of more than 200 African captives, across the Atlantic, Louisiana's governor, Jean-Baptiste Lemoyne, Sieur de Bienville, was overseeing a motley team Canadian and French soldiers and convicts, as well as enslaved and free Native American laborers. Lemoyne de Bienville was charged with clearing the Cypress Swamp where New Orleans was, would rise. Within a decade of the Aurore 1718 voyage, enslaved Africans would become Louisiana's favored laboring class, arriving in numbers that changed the colony's demographic from a society with slaves to a slave society. Alpin and his crew spent six weeks purchasing captives and provisions from Ouida's traders before sailing for Louisiana. After stopping for repairs and supplies, first on the Atlantic island of Principe and then on the Caribbean island of Granada, the Aurora arrived along the Gulf Coast on June 6, 1719, nearly a year after its departure from France. The enslaved Africans disembarked from the Aurore were the first of more than 6,000 documented men, women, and children carried to French colonial Louisiana via the transatlantic trade. Approximately 27% of Louisiana-bound captives embarked from Ouida. Another 5% left from the Angolan port city of Cabinda in West Central Africa here. A far larger number, over 4,700 people, more than a third of the individuals brought to Louisiana during the French colonial period boarded ships at Gore Island, which if you're familiar with modern day Dakar, Senegal, I say that like Ophelia Quistarctin because I can. Um, Dakar is here and then off the coast is Gore Island. Uh, between Gore and Saint Louis, more than a two thirds of the enslaved individuals were brought um, to Louisiana. And that doesn't mean that all of the individuals were coming from these two outposts. They are being funneled from the interior to the coast. So you have the number of captives embarked from Africa versus the number disembarked. And that reflects the mortality rate of the people being um, disembarked and the people who don't make the voyage. Average number of men, women, and children crowded onto slave ships during this period for Louisiana is 302. Average number arrive is 271. The middle passage is the crossing of the Atlantic from the time a slave ship left, not France, but the time a slave ship left the last port of collection in Africa to the time that it reached, for example, the mouth of the Mississippi. The average length was 65 days. On arrival in New Orleans, those who had survived the Middle Passage and the journey upriver were taken first to the company's plantation across the river from New Orleans. How many of you live in Algiers? Anybody live on the West Bank? So when they arrived, if they survived, they were taken first to this site, to the company's plantation across the river from New Orleans. 
there, those suffering from malnutrition, fevers, yaws, which is an infection of the eyes, and other illnesses received treatment at the company's hospital. If they survived, most were then sold either on site at the company plantation or across the river in New Orleans. The majority of enslaved Africans were destined to live and labor outside the colonial capital, in tobacco fields near Natchez, on indigo and rice plantations up and down river, on small farms across the Mississippi Valley, and along the colony's numerous waterways. Yet there were other occasions, many occasions, when men, women, and children of all ages, owned by colonists, military officers, religious orders, and administrators outside the settlement, were brought to or had business here. From its earliest days, New Orleans was a crossroads, a place situated in the deep bend of the Mississippi and accessible from both the river and nearby Lake Pontchartrain. Enslaved boatmen water navigated this watery landscape, bringing goods and people to the marketplace. African draymen, including those who were among the 38 people owned by colonist Charles de Moron, carted slave-made bricks from Mahon's brickworks to construction sites strewn across recently cleared land. And African women surely joined Native Americans and Europeans in peddling provisions grown on nearby farms. There were other occasions, too, when Africans not living in New Orleans found themselves in the settlement. In 1728, the Louisiana Superior Council, the colony's judicial body, mandated that every slave-owning colonist provide labor to public works projects for a period of 30 days per enslaved person annually. This mandate, known as corvée, brought many enslaved men and women into New Orleans each year, where they were put to work building and shoring up levees, clearing land, and maintaining drainage canals. As you might imagine, the types of labor enslaved people engaged in during corvée were some of the least desirable. Hard labor led to injuries and exhaustion, exposed and cramped living quarters and questionable provisions placed laborers in a precarious state, vulnerable to spreading sickness and infections. Some men engaged in corvée never made it back to their owners. This was the case with Alphonse, a man owned by a Canadian officer, Charles Petit de Le Villiers. In April of 1730, Alphonse fell ill while working on the drainage ditch intended to encircle the settlement. After a brief hospitalization, he died. We know this because his owner, having lent him to the Company of the Indies for public works projects, sued the company to have him replaced because they had lost their investment. Whether Petit de Levillier, the owner, was successful or not is unclear. For Alphonse, an African man with a Christian French name, his life ended here, just blocks from where we sit today. Africans were not tied exclusively to land-bound endeavors. Dozens of men based both in New Orleans and directly across the river at Algiers Point, served as sailors, rowers, and river pilots, shuttling goods and people to and from this place. In a letter to company directors written in March of 1729 regarding maritime labor, the governor, Etienne Perrier, and local administrator Jacques de la Chaise proclaimed, quote, we are putting in as many blacks as we can in the place of white men. 
The role of African and African-descended people in the development of early New Orleans society was formative. Their labors, clearing the land to allow for growth, raising the levee to protect against flooding, making the very bricks, shingles, and foundations used to construct permanent structures, shaped our physical landscape. Their knowledge of rice and crop cultivation, building methods, and healing helped sustain and shelter the settlement's early inhabitants and their cultures. Their cultures of survival, of resilience, continued to mark and mold the city nearly 300 years after their arrival. Thank you. Tripod is a production of WWNO New Orleans Public Radio in collaboration with the Historic New Orleans Collection and the Midlow Center for New Orleans Studies at UNO. Special thanks to Evan Christopher for the opening theme music to our entire Tripod Editorial Committee and Tripod Editor Eve Abrams. Also thanks to Christy Lorio for production assistance this week. Catch Tripod on the air Thursdays during Morning Edition and again on Mondays during All Things Considered. Listen to Tripod anytime, anywhere by subscribing to the podcast and rate us and review us. Find us on social media at Tripod NOLA. We're on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. Also, go to WWNO.org where you can hear the entire talk that Aaron gave on the arriving Africans to New Orleans. It's The whole thing is just really, 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 really interesting. And I recommend you hear you hear the whole thing. So again, have a great Jazz Fest weekend. Hoping for no rain. Forecast suddenly looks better, maybe. Uh, you never know. But uh, I'll see you out there. I'm Lane Kaplan-Levinson, and I'll try to pod you later.